This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio. Welcome to the Money Pot. I'm Sanjeev Kalida, editor in chief here at Money 2020, and I'm joined here by Rachel Morrissey, our producer. How are things, Rachel? Things are pretty good, Sanj. I am excited to get to Idaho this summer. I miss it out west. And I think traveling is on a lot of people's minds this summer. It's become a bit expensive. I mean, I guess a lot of things are actually. Did you see the consumer price index report on inflation? Oh yeah, I I saw that report and it's all part of the new normal. While you're going out west, I'm going east. Last night I booked hotel rooms for my wife and I to visit Dubai. With the public getting vaccinated and everything opening up, there's a surge of demand. As an example, my wife hasn't seen her parents in 20 months. And with the stimulus, there are pockets of extra money out there. We talk about the pandemic as an accelerant a lot. There's a balance to be struck with inflation. If you look at the prices from two years ago, pre-pandemic, prices rose about 2.5 percent. But that 2.5 percent is bound to affect the people who are least able to afford it. When there is inflation, cash loses value. You know, and that story dropped at the same time as the ProPublica story on the IRS records of some of the wealthiest individuals in the country. One thing that made clear was that they didn't hold their wealth in cash; they put it into investments and assets that will be taxed at different rates later. And growing up, some of the wealthiest people I knew were farmers. But their wealth was not liquid. It was in land, assets, investments, and equipment, which depreciates. The idea that they had lots of spare cash lying around wasn't at all the case. It's funny that you mentioned farming because yesterday I planted one tomato plant, three rosemaries, and twenty-seven petunias. I think I still have some dirt on me. But but thinking about farmers besides the equipment, most of their assets held value. That is a key part of why investing can help build wealth. Do you remember when we were speaking about the GameStop story in February, and we spoke about how democratizing investment can help people put more money into assets that hold value and have a possible return? I, I do. I was thinking about Vlad's story and my own experience in Bulgaria in the '90s. Witnessing out-of-control inflation is a huge eye-opener to understanding the difference between having cash on hand and having wealth. People need money to pay their bills and pay for groceries. Where I grew up, there are a lot of farmers. They had a lot of wealth protected from market conditions by investing in physical assets and livestock. But it's not like farmers could take a cow into Walmart and say, "Hey, I'm giving you a quarter of this cow in exchange for my purchases." I know Walmart sells beef stock, but I don't think that's what they mean when they're talking about liquid assets. <laughs> and I'm sure <laughs> this is something which is on a lot of people's noodles. I mean, mine's right now. I mean, we're experiencing the highest rate of inflation since 2008. But what is interesting is what has changed around the market since that time, which could make things play out a little differently than it did in 2008. Is there is an entirely different way of making money and protecting your wealth than there was back then? One of the most obvious over the past year is the rise of micro investing with the likes of Robinhood or Public or similar apps and. I actually spoke to Brian Barnes, who's the founder of M1 Finance. It's another one of these micro investing platforms. So my name is Brian Barnes. I am the founder and CEO of M1 Finance. And they, like many of the investing apps, want to democratize investing. So they want to make it more accessible, less intimidating, 
and more of a tool for people to manage their finances. Yes, and that includes thinking about investments as somewhat liquid. It's called M1 because it's a sort of moniker in the econ realm where economists use it for the sum of all currency and the money in checking and savings accounts. And so economists use it to say like how liquid is the environment, how liquid is the the economic uh, like picture. We sort of take a perspective that everything is digital now. And so it shouldn't matter if it's $10 in your pocket, if it's, you know, $50 worth of Starbucks, you know, stock, it's very liquid now. So this perspective that everything is digital now is kind of sister to the idea of NFTs and trading real world assets for digital use. I mean, NFTs do two things. They make digital assets real, but they also turn real assets digital. So technically you could make and trade portions of a live cow through the digital markets. So we're talking about digital beef stock now? I don't know if that's gonna taste great. Yeah, maybe not. It definitely wouldn't be filling. But what it does mean is that everyday people should be able to use the same methods that wealthy people have always used to preserve and grow their wealth. For us, it's really tradable stocks and ETFs, sort of, you know, big companies. And it is funny when you own a share of Starbucks, you do own a portion of the company, you own a portion of all the real estate, you own a portion of all their, you know, beans and machines and, you know, like all of that, which is theoretically also not liquid. Like, you know, if you, if you wanted to actually go and sell those things, it would be relatively difficult, but it is really through this like securitization that you you break the company up into shares, you sell those shares that represents ownership, then it does become liquid. And, you know, when we move into this, you know, very digital world where you can trade for free, you can invest for free, you can invest in any amount of any security that you want, you can sort of change, you know, while we're on like this call, I could change between, you know, $50 of like cash to $50 of Starbucks to $50 of Amazon to $50 of debt to $50 of gold through a gold ETF back to $50 in cash. And it could just be like instant and, and, and free. And so that's what, really what we're talking about. Unfortunately, we haven't gone you know far enough to go into that farmer realm where you know you securitize a, a cow or whatever it may be. But I think the, the principle still remains. It would be very nice to be able to, you know, as a farmer say, you know, one day I sell half a cow, two days later, I buy it back and, you know, sort of nothing's changed. And it just like helped me with my, like the, the cash needs that I need to, to run my life. So when we're talking about inflation, we know that a small amount of inflation isn't necessarily the enemy of a good economy in macro. It intentionally depresses the value of cash on hand as a way to encourage spending. Right. So the Fed might raise interest rates to control the rate of inflation. But the big damage is to the people who hold more cash or don't have a lot of assets outside of their cash. Traditionally, low to middle income earners. The difficult thing is like the Fed talks about how they have a target for it to become worth less over time. And, you know, they're like doing anything and everything in their power to have it have you know, a 2% inflation, which is almost thought of as a negative 2% return. So the more that you hold on to it for a long time, the the value of it just diminishes over time. And so it doesn't, you, you need it to transact. It doesn't make sense to hold long-term. So the Fed wants to encourage a certain level of depreciation of cash over time because they don't want people sitting on cash. Cash that isn't doing anything isn't contributing to the flow of cash in our economy. So these micro-investing platforms are actually a great opportunity for smaller earners to get their money both working for them 
and for our economy in general. Exactly. I mean, suddenly a whole swath of people who weren't able to access stocks are able to. And that could have a real impact on our economy. You know, in the old days, you had to pay extremely high commission rates to invest in securities. You had to buy in what were called like even blocks of shares, so hundreds of shares. And so, you know, if you wanted to make an investment in a company, good luck buying $75 worth. You had to buy $28,000 worth. And so you had to, you know, put giant sums to work and then they were going to charge you one or 2% each way. And I think as things have become more fluid, more flexible, it is, you get money, you can put it to work immediately. If you need access to it, you can either sell the security or you can borrow against it. So obviously micro investing makes it a lot more possible for people to participate than ever before. I mean, we've seen the popularity of these platforms skyrocket over the past year. But I wonder how much differentiation between each of these apps is there? What does M1 offer that is different from other platforms? Well, M1 avoids the gamification engagement model that a lot of the other apps use. They take a longer term view of investments. They also have a number of revenue streams, so they lean much less on pay for order flow fees, meaning that they aren't focused on volume of trades, but rather the quality of the investments. And if we're talking about this being a part of a functioning economy, this way of working without gamification plays a big part in legitimizing this kind of investing. Just last week, Gary Gensler raised concerns on payment order flow and gamification models, exploiting its users. And he explained that the SEC needed to update its rules to regulate this better. And I think there are good ways to utilize the nature of puzzles to encourage engagement in the stock markets. But we should be thinking about ways to make the game more about quality over quantity and removing the aspect of instant gratification, which will be extremely difficult. It seems like every successful platform built in the last 10 years have been about getting your kicks instantly. Brian agreed with the need to lengthen the cycle of risk and reward. Solving a puzzle is fun in the abstracts. Solving a puzzle and getting rewarded with money, it, it, it does make it more fun. The interesting thing about investing is you're actually making infrequent decisions. You're trying to buy something for three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. You're making an investment decision every three months. And so it's, it's not the making the decision that's hard. It's the, I have a little bit of extra cash every two weeks with my paycheck. And it was just every two weeks having to go through the same like 30, 45 minute exercise and saying like, this is not how modern, <laughs> like software can do this. The real benefit of these apps is the automation or the elimination of the hard work aspect of investing. People's time is valuable these days. And this takes into account that value and automates the processes that don't need your attention. Earlier fintech companies like Betterment and Acorns automated investing by taking your spare change and putting it into investment accounts without you needing to think about it. With those, the destination of the investment is decided by the AI informed by certain answers the user gives during sign-up. But I know that M1 operates differently, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's also a free investment tool and has automation available, but it also allows for you to choose specific companies to invest in on a repeating basis. If you said, you know, I have a perspective that I want to be, you know, tilt more internationally than U.S., or I want to have exposure to more healthcare stocks, or I want a specific, you know, individual equity that I want to build up ownership in over long periods of time because I think it's undervalued. I really like, you know, think that the brand and service that they are creating is is phenomenal and will, will increase in value over time. 
M1 allows you to have that level of customization, but it's still, you're designing a portfolio. So you're saying, I want 5% of my money in Amazon. Anytime you add money to it, 5% of the money goes to work and it dynamically adjusts how much money that is based on how the portfolio is doing. And so what that allows you to do is because it's done on a percentage basis, you don't have to go through the, you know, like gymnastics of how many shares is this? What part will the commission eat up? How, like, where should I, you know, I want to invest in nine different things. How much should I put in each one? So if it's free and they're not gamifying to increase engagement, what's the business model? How how are they making money? Well, they have more traditional revenue streams than you might think. I mean, their end game is to be your prime financial account. They currently have an investing product, a borrowing product, and a debit card product. Ah, so they get the interchange fee on the debit card, the fee off on the investment growth. But let's talk about the borrowing one. That seems the interesting one. Yeah, they have a double-sided lending model. The individual user is able to invest money and pull that money out as usual. But they are also able to get a loan based against their investments with a small interest rate attached. They get to keep their investments and ideally the money they're making on them will outweigh any interest on the loan. And at the same time, M1 also lends the shares to other investors, for example, short sellers. And M1 makes money from them by charging them a fee. Like the, the analogy is really the banking industry of you put de- your money in a bank, the bank pays you close to nothing at, 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 like for those deposits, and then they lend it out at higher interest rates and they capture the difference between what they lend it out right. and what they pay you. So it's, it's the same analog. The difference is it's securities and there's a big marketplace to borrow securities. And it's for a whole host of reasons. One of the biggest one is to, sh- to short sell. And so this is when you want to bet that a security is going down rather than up. And to do that, you first have to borrow the security. You then sell it on the open market. At a later date, you buy it back and return the share. And so brokerages out there like M1 can say, you know, hey, security XYZ has, you know, people out there who want to borrow it for short sale purposes. They like borrow it from us, pay money on it, and they're forced to return it later. And so we can earn a yield on just the securities that are on our platform by facilitating uh, the transactions in this marketplace. That does sound like a traditional consumer banking business model. Aside from it dealing with securities rather than cash, the difference is that they're only charging the back end, whereas banks charge both sides. Exactly. It's taking what works from those traditional banks and putting it in this new context, and because there's a few streams, they're not dependent on order flow for growth. True, but one thing I wonder about is that we've seen multiple short seller squeezes over the years, which can lead to market discontinuities. In other words, a situation where assumptions about free markets can fall apart. Yeah, and that's why some of the details of how you run a business like this are so important. In a farming analogy, Knowing when to pick your crop is important, and you can lose a year's worth of work by getting it wrong, even by a day or so. I gotta say, I think this talk of farming and travel makes me look forward to getting some kebabs in Dubai. (laughs) You're right. I've been thinking about a nice barbecue with my family in Idaho right now. All right, well, maybe we should wrap it up in that case. And that is it for this episode of The Money Pot. 
We'd like to thank Brian Barnes from M1 for his time. We'd also like to thank our producer, the whole writer's room, Roland Bottenham. And we are very excited about seeing you live in Amsterdam on September 21st to 23rd and in Vegas from October 24th to 27th. Tickets to both shows are available now at money2020.com. And if you like the money pot, please leave us a review in iTunes to help others find the show. This podcast will also be live in Vegas. So tell us now how much you want to be part of it by sending ideas to podcast at money2020.com. Thank you for listening. This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio.